Welcome to another instalment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by Anton, Thomas and Tobias to discuss how important is data within product, qualitative versus quantitative. So before we delve deeper into the topic, I'll work my way around the room for some introductions. So Anton, do you want to kick us off? Uh, hi, yeah, great to be here today. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so I've uh, been working in, in large uh, telecom companies, uh, vendors and uh, telecom providers around the world for most of my career. Somewhere along the line, I, I got very interested in product management about 10 years ago. And then um, about five years ago, or so I, I got itchy feet and wanted to try being a little bit more entrepreneurial. So I've been hopping around a little bit between lots of little startups with uh, varying degrees of success. And as of today, I'm at a scale up called Spectra Cloud, uh, which is a Silicon Valley based company, and I'm the head of product there. Fantastic. And Thomas, we'll come to you next. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, I, I got a quite similar story to Anton. So we haven't met before, but I spent many years working in, in the media industry and, and with Silicon. And uh, yeah, that got big. Now I am at a smaller company um, as VP of product. We're building a customer data platform, two years old, still in, in seed stage. Uh, I just love it right now. Love that I don't know shit and that we're trying to figure everything out. That's amazing. Way more fun than than big corporate. Fantastic. And last but not least, Tobias, we'll come to you next. Well, a similar story here as well. <laughs> working at a larger company uh, with product. I've been in product for 10 years, uh, working at a big media company in, in, um, in Sweden. Um, working also with scaling out the classified concept around the world. And that's where I got my first touch on product uh, and product development. And it's it's the greatest job, I think, because you're touching all aspects of, of a company. Uh, marketing is, uh, uh, and you're touching on the product, you're touching on the users, you're touching on customer support. It's like the center of all digital products. So I've continued in that, um, that direction and work with um, innovation at that company uh, and looking at new, building up new products. And um, a year ago, I started a startup my, myself um, with, with a friend within career coaching, um, building a digital career coach. And as Thomas said, it's, it's great fun. Uh, you, uh, you don't know that much and you need to figure out in different ways. Um, and usually at larger corporations, there is this, um, this way of always knowing the answers because you have so much data available, especially quantitative data, which you don't have as a startup. And uh, then you need to, to act more on signals and try to, to figure that out. Um, and we're also, as I said, like one year early stage, still trying to figure out uh, where we're heading. Uh, and, um, and it's great, great fun and great to be discussing this because it's uh, questions that we think about in, in the startup uh, every, every day, like how, how to use data effectively and what kind of data collection and data points will help us take the right decisions uh, going forward. Fantastic. Cheers, Tobias. So now that we've established a bit of context to each of you, We'll move on to the topic in focus. So everyone has a question or statement on how important is data within product. As usual, I'll work my way around the room asking if you to pose your question, the reasons behind it, and each of you will have your opportunity to give your take on the situation. Before we do that, we will kick off with the title of the podcast and get everyone's opinions. So how important is data within product? What does everyone think? Yes, I think the easy answer obviously is it's super important, right? I think it's it's more uh, to me a matter of what kind of data is important at what stage in in your company's life cycle. Because obviously now it seems that like we have some common denominators in this group. But I don't care about a two percent increase in conversion on a certain page. You know, I'm looking for things that can make a huge difference in, in short time, and that that sets the frame for the kind of data I'm looking for, right? So I think that's it. Like if you're Amazon, you're looking for one kind of data. If you're a small company, you're looking for another kind of data. And that's some of the stuff I'd like to discuss and get into depth with. It sounds like you're looking for big levers, right? Like what's going to give you 10x or what's going to give you 50x? Exactly. And, and how do we find those? Levers? Exactly. Well, I can go next. Um, so I have a little bit of a history with this topic. I, I was on um, Product Beats doing a presentation um, a couple of months ago. And I try, I actually, to be honest with you, I became a little bit frustrated about the predominance of data usage. I do absolutely believe that data usage is incredibly important for product management, but I felt that we were starting to forget some of the uh, principles of product management in the course of that. Like anyone could come along with some kind of survey or some kind of data, or they would call it data without it knowing how clean it is or how the question was laid out or any of this kind of standard stuff that you might remember from your courses at university or school about doing a good statistic, doing some good statistics work. And 
as I got frustrated with this, I just I thought I'm going to start talking about this and I'm actually going to be quite provocative. So I, my, the title of my presentation was why data sucks and why product principles rock. And uh, it doesn't mean that I don't like data for product management. Not at all. It's absolutely critical. But I wanted people to start thinking about some other things like good old critical thinking or curiosity or first principles like how the, these kind of like uh, methodologies for structured thinking that would enable you to frame the right questions, ask the right questions, get the right data and analyze that data. So I'm much more into that side of things. And I think you guys are based off what I've seen of what you want to talk about today. You're also more into, you're also thinking about like, once you've stepped past those principles and like you understand that you need those and you're practicing those, then you start digging and finding data and how do you ask the right how, how do you get the right data that's relevant for your product and how do you find those 50x versus 1x or 10x kind of things so um yeah so i think it's very important i just put this caveat around it and say like i hope that you're using structured thinking before you start waving the data stick around really interesting and looking forward to uh, to hearing more about uh, about your question uh, later on tom um, yeah, I, I went into this podcast also thinking a bit more about um, how how you make use or we can create some kind of effective process in getting the data and understand how you make the, the data informed decisions. And I agree with you that then you need to have some structural thinking behind it before you actually start collecting it. It's like when you had uh, the, the marketing research study that I did at university it was like, okay, first you do some kind of exploratory interviews with, with users to find out different things and then you do the uh, this, the more scalable quantitative survey with different questions, because if you didn't do the exploratory survey before, it's difficult to understand how you should phrase the questions and you don't really know the, the why why behind it. Um, so, so I think that's that's one thing around like quantitative qualitative uh, as, as the premise of the first question is, is that um, you need to have both, but also they they play different importance in different parts of the of the life cycle that you talked about, uh, Thomas. Um, and I think when it comes then to, um, to, to product development, I think uh, a really good product, of course, is, um, is a product that users love and then, then you get money out of. But it's also around like how to get there is to doing the right thing for the user in the right way. Um, and, um, and where we are in the startup world uh, early on is really around finding out what's the, what the right thing is rather than doing it in the right uh, right way, um, so to say. And I think that's one um, one dimension to think about, like when, when to use which kind of tools. Because also going back to the qualitative and quantitative, qualitative is much better understanding the why, while uh, the quantitative is more around explaining what's happening. And you probably need both in order to, to really understand what, uh, what sticks. And another thing around making making an effective process, I think, and how to use data is um, what we use in 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 the startup I work now is to think about like are the decisions that we're taking based on data can we can we change them or are they unchangeable? Meaning, what's the consequence? What's the impact of this decision? And that will also um, how to say uh, impact the use of data, but also the amount of data you would need to take that decision, right? So what's the consequence of failing this experiment or this thing that we're doing uh, is also important in, in the amount of time or the, the way you, 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 you build before you actually launch something. So those two dimensions that I think is important uh, uh, when thinking about uh, uh, using data in product, uh, product development. Fantastic. Cheers, guys. Um, so I think there's probably a good person to start off with. So Anton, we'll come to your question first. Right. Okay. So on this theme of um, product principles then, um, which is on the qualitative side for sure. So asking yourself why you're asking that question, you know, the why behind even uh, before you even get started. Um, and even thinking about what you're going to do after you get the data. I liked what you just said to be. It's like, okay, so, so if I ask that question and I get that data, and I get these type of answers, or the I can I think I will get these kind of answers out of it. Uh, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to ask more questions, or am I going to be able to take you know actions with my with my product? And I think thinking through that before actually helps you with framing your questions. It'll help you to filter out like, well, actually that that that's not a very good question because I won't do anything. It was not actionable. Um, so my question is. Um, 
I wonder how many people in product are actually trained in data science or statistics. So how many of them have actually studied even, you know, science or practiced science for that matter, because you don't have to study it to, to, to practice it. But I wonder how many people without that sort of training are doing things like baking their own preferences and their own thinking into their questions. So what sort of rigor are they putting around creating these questions? And because you know that the, what you ask matters, in my opinion, more than what you're going to get as an answer. Um, and if you look at data from, say, if we to, to speak a little bit more practically and, and, and less sort of theoretically, if we're using our own apps, for example, take a mobile app or, or some kind of data platform, and you're gathering data from your own product, which is what everybody does, right? Or a lot of people do that. That's, that's one of the easiest ways to get data. Are we already framing the question through our own lens into the market, right? We're asking users who are already using our products questions. What about the users who aren't using our product? Uh, what if I have 5% of the market? What about the other 95? So asking the question as well, like, uh, I don't know what I don't know. That's also a very difficult thing. Like, how do I understand what are the new areas that I should know if I only have my own lens? So I don't know, maybe you guys can you can help me, you can educate me on that one. Not sure a lot of educate, education will be going on here. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but I think it's super interesting to, to take this thought to the extreme that you go all the way back and remove all bias. You know, you ask something completely unbiased. What, what I'm trying to get is that that'd be very, very open the feedback you would get, right? Or do we need some bias? I mean, just that we scope our questions and that we ask something that in itself is building in some bias, right? I mean, often I have an idea of what I want to know. I have an idea of the function of the problem that I'm trying to solve that I'm asking into and that, that in itself built in some bias. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's like if I ask, like, you know, if you ask questions like, um, what's your favorite color? And I give you three options, black, white, and red. And then I go and take the result of that survey because that's, it's the same thing. It's like my product has a subset of functions and has a, has, a, has a subset of things that it can do. And then I'm going to look at the data. It's um, like, I don't know, it, it, I guess if you're in a large enough company and you have a big enough research department or you have people that you can, because product managers and heads of product and VPs are busy too, right? Like you've got a lot of stuff just building products as well and keeping the ship running day to day. Um, to go out and sort of pull the market outside of your product might be one way to, to help balance out, you know, your lens versus what others are seeing out there. And I know, I, you know, I think one tactic that I've seen used is like engaging agencies to do it for you, um, including getting them to come up with questions. Maybe you give them a, a light guidance about what it is that you're after, but otherwise you don't interfere with them too much because you don't want to taint them, right? You want them to be as neutral as possible. And then they come back and give you a report on, you know, whatever it is that you're asking. I've seen that work quite well, but you have to you have to be very careful and, you know, make sure that you don't interfere too much, but that you also keep them pointed in the right direction. I think like um, going back to um, to what you were talking about, Thomas, about having some bias, I think most of, of us building products start with some kind of gut feeling of what will work or not will work, uh, but you need to be humble on on whether it would work or not, right? So I think it's easy to, if you go totally just exploratory, it's it's more like um, may, um, maybe you will maybe we'll find something in the needle in the haystack or you would not. But if you're trying to find a needle and you don't find it, then you know, and then you can move on to to another other thing. So I think that kind of bias is 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 good to try to be not as biased as, at all. But I do think that um, building products require, especially from scratch. A gut feeling that something would work because most of the data early on will suggest that you're on the right wrong track. But if you trust your gut and, and when you when you have ideas you want to do, and then you try to to make small experiments or different things that would allow you to get the data whether, or signals that you're on the right uh, right track uh, or not, I think is um, um, is is uh, is a way to um, to go. And then I agree, like you, there are like if you have. If you're too narrow, I think there's the way I usually structure you, your customer interviews is like there's one part that is more like open and just talking about the domain that's interesting. For instance, now in a career, so I usually talk about okay how people are thinking about their careers and 
what what it takes a lot of energy and and things like that is more like broad you will get different kind of answers around it and then i have my my idea or the things i want to try and then i start trying that and see what kind of feedback i i get from that and maybe there are a lot of opportunities i'll, I'll lose doing this but still it's something i want to want to test right and something that i have a gut feeling that i think would work and i want to then make sure as quick as i can to to see that it would would work or give me something that I should continue uh, working on this, um, um, so to say. Hypothesis. Yeah, exactly. Like trying to, you you would have that in, initially in the beginning. And then I think the question you're talking about is also like, how do you form this hypothesis and how can you be open while while, while forming them? And But at one point you need to, to choose where you want to go, especially for a small startup, we have <laughs> we have one front end engineer, right? And it's just mm -hmm. me, UX designer. So time is limited, uh, and uh, also like the burn burn rate, like we don't have uh, all cash to to do this forever. So you need to take higher risk. And the question is then, how can you? You need to choose and then do something because there's also I listened to a podcast some time ago, and there's this uh, very nice quote that says like action creates information. So you're doing stuff, talking to customers like that gives you some kind of uh, information and then it's better maybe to not better but it's good then to always keep on iterating doing experimentations and getting a small piece of evidence to at least hone in on what are the right things to to do um, and usually that takes longer time than you would expect like the when you read a textbook about testing business ideas and things like it's just like do this experiment and then you're ready to go and you're like mm, yeah maybe this experiment uh, i don't know it was like eh uh could be good could be bad and then you do another experiment and things like that so early on with, with less data i think in what you're talking about also this kind of product principles i think those comes up with of course some insights but also some kind of product sense and and, and intuition and, and things like that that you think you would work and then you try to get data to to prove it in in different uh, different ways uh, yeah. yeah, but I think you're touching on something important here that there's like real life meeting what you read in the textbooks and, and on LinkedIn and all, all the experts all around, right? That it's messy and you have to cut corners because you don't have unlimited runway. Um, I think going back and I remember when I was studying in, in a class that you know, I never thought I'd use any of this real life, but we were always taught, you know, you cannot avoid your bias, but you need to be very open about it and, and disclose what your bias is and then work around it because there's no way to get, get rid of it. Um, and I think, again, the hypothesis is, is basically a bias. That is basically that you're already disclosing that you're building in some bias in your question. This is what you're investigating. And then obviously there's a method, as you say, Anton. There's a method if you ask, uh, do you like red, green or blue? Or what is your favorite color? Obviously, there's some skill and some craft in doing it that you need to be good at. Absolutely. You guys made me think of Nokia while you were speaking um, because we, we mentioned small companies versus large companies at the start. Uh, it's also possible that you have a lot of resources and you get a lot of data and you draw the wrong conclusions or or you don't. Some people at Nokia absolutely knew what was coming with, you know, capacitive touchscreens and stuff in the in the phones, but they wanted to keep using, you know, resistive uh, touchscreens for whatever reason and, and they wanted to keep a keyboard and so on and so on. So I think that there's I think that people were probably asking the right questions, but they weren't able to act on it. And so that you know, there's there's a different kind of risk in really large companies like that as well. Small companies have a different kind of risk. They don't have as many resources and so on, and, and everything can go pear-shaped very quickly. But on the other hand, that product sense and that that nimbleness that you mentioned, uh, that you alluded to, um, is is a big advantage compared to somebody like that too. I don't think that uh, it feels like in retrospect, nobody at Nokia could have changed the outcome of, of what happened there, unfortunately. There's a, there are very few companies, large companies that can, but I think that the ones that do, they have a culture of experimentation and they take their experiments really seriously and the results. Like they almost act as though the, the knowledge that they're gaining from that. I loved what you said before, by the way, about uh, action brings information. Um, absolutely true. Um, but there's something existential for these guys about doing those experiments. And it is existential. There's a lot to lose if you're a company like Apple with how many hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue or something, right? 
it can all go downhill really quickly. So how do they protect themselves? They have to just have this completely brutal, open approach to experimentation and second guess and be like extremely critical and um, humble in a way. You need you need a form of humbleness, I think, even though you're in a real position of strength. So I, I bring that up because I think that those are principles that I think apply should apply to anybody. Even if you're an expert in a field and you go and do your own startup, you have all the domain knowledge, right? But that's a strength and a weakness. And as you mentioned, it's like you, Thomas, you mentioned, you really have to be aware of your own biases. Yeah, and I think, and I think what you say, absolutely big difference between small and big company. You guys been at big uh, legacy companies as well. Like you, you got so much to lose when you experiment, when you change direction. That's not the case in the smaller companies. So I absolutely agree that completely different operating models in, in those two kinds of companies. Yeah. I can actually share a very small story, quick story about uh, Ericsson. Uh, since I was at Ericsson for a long time and, and what I did there was uh, working on these new 5G backhaul routers. So they're the, the routers for transporting the data back from the base stations. We started building those in 2014-ish or something like that. And, you know, uh, as a product manager for that, um, we had to define the whole portfolio. And we, we had data that was saying that most of the base stations out there were 2G, which was true. Most of them were. And they had a special kind of interface. They didn't really use Ethernet interfaces. They still used some kind of old thing. And it sounds very obvious to you when I say this to you and I'm describing this to you, but there was an immense amount of pressure for the new routers for 5G looking forward to support all of these 2G base stations. And they're completely polar opposite when it comes to things like capacity, right? 2G, as you know, it's like two megabits or something like really, really low. 5G, we're talking about over one gigabit for one handset potentially. So we were thinking, well, if we're going to build routers that are going to handle those ones in the future, and this was qualitative, right? You just, you, you know it because everybody's talking about it. You know which way the industry is going. You've been at the trade shows. You, you know, you just, you just know it. You know, I don't need the data. Actually, the data doesn't exist, by the way. It's only a statements of intentions by the entire planet about what they're going to do, but there's actually no data. So we wanted to, and we did end up, luckily, building routers that were geared for, you know, four years down the road, not 10 years behind. But the pressure there, it was so crazy. Like I will never forget that. I remember being very frustrated. And I think that again, that's the big company syndrome because you've got so many different vested interests around the place with different budgets that job protection, like the people who really cared about 2G, for example, they, <laughs> you know. So, you know, I think it's really tough. And even though it can talk about the principles too. It's um, I think it's harder when you're there, even though it sounds obvious what you should do when you talk about it on a podcast. Anyway, now I've been talking too much, so it's someone else's turn. Well, we can uh, move nicely on to Thomas. We can come to your question next. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, when, when you read stuff, when you go full and magic cake and on it, you always have a lot of knowledge. You always have a lot of information. You you just interview a lot of clients and you get information. You just look at your web analytics and you get a lot of information. Um, I'm at a place where, you know, access to a lot of clients doesn't exist. I mean, we have clients and yeah, we can interview them, but soon that will, will dry out and we can look at our web analytics. But, you know, if you have a small amount of customers, you don't get any statistical significance in that, in that you know, you can't really draw any conclusions on the data. So that's what I'd like some input on. I'd like to discuss how do you collect data in a valid way when you don't have a ton of customers and you don't have unlimited resource are there any any ways of doing it and i can start you know I, today you know i rely heavily on our sales team for example feedback they get from clients also from prospects that don't close deals but still getting that feedback but obviously that comes with a risk that product development becomes very sales driven because this is just what works in the sales situation then we've got the csm team the customer success obviously you can talk to those guys and that that's super, but that's can limit it as long as we don't have a big customer base. And then we can talk to, you know, doing a lot of interviews, recruiting interviews with, with people not using the product. That's also kind of hard, you know, finding the right people, making sure they maybe like the product. I mean, for exploitative reasons, it, it, it's good, but but I just feel that, you know, lacking some focus on, on how you operate in, in this early stage and how you get data. I mean, another one is like, how do you validate your test? How do you make, know if a test is good or bad? Or you build a feature. 
how do you know if it's good and bad? There's a lot of stuff that sounds super easy if you could scale, but that I think is quite difficult in this early stage. You mean valid? You mean validation like um, A/B testing, for example, when you don't have a large user base? For example, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I oh, know that's a tough one. How do you bootstrap yourself in the beginning? Uh, I think that my answer for this is going to be uh, too bad. It's going to come back on the qualitative side. It's going to be you have a hunch. Your your whole company is a hypothesis at this stage in time, and uh, clearly there was something there that made you believe that that there was something here. Um, so not a very practical answer, but I think that before you started your startup, your company, I think that the rigor should have been applied then, not on data, but on your on your product principles, on your thinking, like. Hey, do I really want to give up my day job for this thing and go and do it? If you have domain knowledge, I think that that is immensely helpful. And also industry knowledge, industry network, uh, running your ideas by your friends at the pub uh, or anyone else that you get the chance. One thing I do know is like, um, don't hide your ideas. I know some startup founders think that they need to hide their ideas and they're a top secret, but it's actually, as you see, no, it's all, it all comes down to execution, not um, execution and drive, not the idea itself. Um, so, so yeah, not a good answer. Uh, uh, only one that I might venture, which I mentioned before, is that especially when burn rate is high or high, relatively speaking, and cash is is tough, like in the beginning when you're bootstrapping. But still, I I did I had one experience with uh, engaging an external agency, and they helped a lot with finding the right people to talk to and interview. And I, I think it was just excellent to have another sort of independent mind on it that wasn't too biased into into my own hypothesis so in a way they're kind of challenging your hypothesis independently awesome thanks really, really like the idea of going to the pub discussing the ideas just for several reasons um, with random people that would work out as well yeah. <laughs> but uh, but you know you you keep circling back to product principles and maybe i'm just uh, not super smart but could you elaborate what do you mean when you talk about product principles it's kind of a term that i just uh, uh, bandy about at the pub no um for me it's it's just it, it's it's all the different aspects that or of of maybe personality traits and uh, ways of thinking and and so on that embody a, a good product manager and i have some examples i i've been ruminating on this a little bit lately but there are things like um strong curiosity um first principle thinking which is something that uh, is engineering principles that you you basically uh rewind every single assumption back down to base facts that are basically impossible to to challenge so like it often comes down to basically physics you know so if you were talking about the cost of batteries in, a, in an electric car then first principle thinking would say, I'm going to go all the way back when you tell me that there are $200 per kilowatt hour or something. I'm actually just going to go and look at the price of the constituent metals on the metal exchange. Oh, it's only $4. So if that's $4, then what I need to do is then start engineering from first principles, like up from the bottom. Okay, so I need to get them in the right shape. I need to get them in the right format and with the right safety and all that stuff. And you engineer and solve those problems up from that baseline. So that's one that I'm really into is that is that, and I think you you use that everywhere, including when you're making assumptions or forming hypotheses, right? Because it's it's very similar. You're like, if given X, Y, and Z, then I want to get over here. How would I get there without being without being overly influenced by what's already out there? So, I'll give you an example. In the case of the battery, uh, if somebody would just say, well, it's impossible for you to build a product, an electric car, because the battery prices are $200 per kilowatt hour or whatever the price is, doesn't matter, but it's it's a very high price. And then you say, okay, then I just give up. Actually, you would instead say, well, I know the base prices are so low, we would have to approach a certain level of scale to get the manufacturing process to the point where this price would come down for the actual constructed battery. What would it take for us to do that? How much investment will we need to do? What kind of partners will we need to work with? Is it possible, et cetera? Then you end up taking a different decision, which is what Tesla ended up doing. They said, well, according to our own engineering thinking, first principle thinking, we will be able to make cars that are electric because we're going to engineer our way out of this problem with the price of the batteries. Again, no data, right? Just product principles. Um, some other product principles that I like are, um, I did take some notes, now I've forgotten them, but they're, they're kind of like soft skills. It's it's critical thinking, it's first principle thinking, and then it's like uh, humbleness, curiosity, drive, stamina, 
like the, there's the things that keep you like going you know but when it comes to i guess the harder to put to put square edges on this i would say it's the first principle thinking and it's the critical thinking i think these are the the key things that i mean by that um yeah and to to go back to to your question how to act on feedback when the feedback is not that much i think it's um it's a little bit like uh, when, I, when i talked about action creates information it's more taking more actions like if you can make smaller experiments even though they're not significant in itself, if you do a large enough uh, experiments and they all point in the same direction, you're feeling more confident that, okay, this is the direction to go. And then after time, you probably will have more scale and then you would, you would you'd figure out. So like um, for us now in the, in the problem space that we've been, we've been looking at, when we talk to five people, it was like, yeah, this, this seems to be something that, that could, could work. And now we talk to 50 people and I could really, okay, we are really nailed on the product. Uh, and then the problem, uh, now we just need to do the, the solution. And to talk to 50, 50 users, it takes time, but with, with users, talking to experts, getting the web analytics, getting whatever we do in marketing with uh, landing pages, tests, and things like that, it paints a picture, a holistic picture that, okay, I think we, we can, uh, with a high certainty, say that this is actually a, a problem. So um, I think it's, again, you talked about humbleness as a, as a product leader, and I think, um, Anton, and I think that's, that's true like you're humble to the data but you 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 are not you're not a how do you say uh, a research scientist that needs to have uh, 95% um, confidence uh, level or or otherwise uh, you get rejected in any journal it's not like that's what we judge and we're judged on the end that people are actually liking it uh, and and this means that we can take actions and do things at much lower confidence level um, and then figure out ways of puzzling things together to get the full picture of whether you're moving in the right right direction or not. And it's it's tricky, but it's like, again, that's kind of, yeah, the product principles would, would, would help if you are um, feeling secure in that the, the based on assumptions would be nice to continue to do different kind of, kind of experiments uh, and going forward. Um, so the way we, we work with this is that we, um, uh, again, we are a consumer facing application, web application, which, which, um, which means it's kind of easy to test. Um, even though we don't have an, a, a very big amount of users, you can still test things with, we use, um, uh, the landing pages that we do uh, very simply in this marketing uh, landing page, uh, platforms, uh, and set it up one in, 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 um, in a few, uh, few minutes. And then we do Google marketing to see what sticks and what the conversion rate would be and things like that. And then you would like, ha, oh, okay, this seems to be a hotter area or this seems more 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 troublesome to to do and and things like that. So, uh, and then we complement that with with talking to different different users and here where they put their emphasis on and things like that. And then all, all of a sudden, okay, now I have enough data to uh, to move in a, in a certain direction. Um, so that's um, that's a little bit how we try to overcome it, and then it's just like okay, you need to live with the uncertainty. Uh, and luckily, uh, maybe we don't have stakeholders um, since we are a startup that would ask like, "Are you certain that this will be the way?" It's more like, okay, we believe that this is the way. Just let's try to to move in that direction. And 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 when we get signals that it won't work, we change and we do it in another other way. So that's a little bit of approach we're we're using, uh, acting on the little little bit of of data uh, and trying to really work on the action creates information uh, like bias for action. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the Google Ads as a feedback source, by the way, the marketing department and whatever works there. Often. You you remind me of sorry you you remind me with that about the Google marketing and the Facebook. I'm not a marketeer, but um, a friend uh, taught me this one, which I forgot about. But it's super interesting. Um, your experiments can just be a marketing, you know, just paid marketing campaign where you don't build anything. You yeah. just, you just see what they react to and if they're coming, if they're converting. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's not, okay, then you're not really, I mean, what you're testing maybe is the basic value proposition and what you also would get if you can, also depends on what kind of sector you're in, because in some sectors it's still like 100 kroners per click, so <laughs> it's kind of expensive to run, but some are, are much lower so you can with a small amount of money get some some amount of signals that suggest let's continue this maybe we get the value prop right or we get the campaigns right and things like that and and then you mm. can feel more secure that you're 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 moving in the right direction and if if it and especially if you're doing simultaneous and that's what we've done like we tested a lot of different keywords not different campaigns different kind of market target groups we see both the 
like the um, yeah the, the click through rate, but also the conversion rate into to signing up to things, and then we can understand well this is a more viable way to go, and then you can compare different kind of campaigns to each other. At least then you have even though all of them are a bit unsecure, you have this kind of different kind of hypothesis that can 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 stand uh, against each other, like the zero hypothesis and the and the challenging hypothesis. Uh, yeah. would, would it be fair to conclude that smaller companies can accept lower confidence levels and as soon as the companies grow we need more confidence in our results I, I think so I mean as Anton put out that your company's hypothesis uh, then uh, you, you you start with with lower confidence levels since you don't have the data you don't have a predictability in, in data in, in the same um, same way uh, so, I think you you ought to you are forced to because look it also talked about like an idea when it hits the market something else would change uh, so you have to take a, a leap leap of faith somehow and when you take a leap of faith you need to embrace and accept the lower kind of confidence level in in what you do and then but you always try to increase it with time right uh, through different uh, different tests and experiments. Um, a little bit related is just. Um how VCs think about investing, how they pick startups to invest in, and it is often about the domain. So why do they why do they pick on the fact that you have domain expertise? This is because, uh, again, um, there's not hard data, but inside your brain is, and I think you sort of touched on that before, there's an immense amount of knowledge in your head, even if you're biased, if you're, if you're from a certain domain and you've been working in it a lot. Um, the whole human brain is basically, as we know, is a giant computer. Some people object when I say that, but it is, in a way, it's storing information. And this information has come from an immense number of interactions and reading and talking to people and thinking and processing. Uh, so it's not to be underestimated in any way, and the VCs certainly don't. And then they also look at... Um, um, they look at sort of your your drive and your and your team. Like if it's a couple of you that have a good team, they normally like to see a couple of people. Um, a bit off topic, but just wanted to mention that that that's what they normally look for because they operate in extreme uncertainty. They don't have a statistical study to say whether or not this. Of course, they have data about different types of industries and startups and things, but they've also, from what I've heard. They, they've understood that most successful startups have those key things, and that's a proxy for data in your head. Yeah, you know that old uh, Henry Ford quote, and I'm not sure I'm paraphrasing it correctly, but that if I, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horse carriages. Yeah, it's a classic. Yeah, yeah it is a classic. Thing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a very good one. Fantastic, guys. So we'll come on to Tobias. We'll come on to your question, last but not least. Yeah, now we're really getting into the the practical weed of things. Like we, uh, it was a good structure this uh, this podcast of uh, thinking broadly around uh, data and a little bit uh, how to think when you start an environment. And um, one thing that I think is is important, of course, is how to to realize. I think we agree that um, like it's that data is important to <laughs> to take decisions, right? And as product leaders, I think it's really much up to us to um, to instill a kind of data-driven or data-informed culture in, in our teams. Um, so, so my my question and what I would like to to share is is more around and discuss like how how you guys are doing that in your teams uh, and and spreading it out so people will take um, uh, dare to take decisions, um, especially if you're in a in a in a startup um, environment when we there is lower level or higher level of uncertainty. How how do we uh, how do we take decision and make people do that? Um, so the way I think is uh, I'm talking about experimentation uh, here, and I will continue to do that. And that's like how can we help the team to do that? I think first of all, structure it nurtures culture. Another kind of cliche or or quote, uh, but I think it's it's really true. Uh, I mean, if we would like to increase the communication within a team, then as a product leader, we set up more stand-ups, do more retros, making sure that the communication lines are more open and bit people are forced into that kind of kind of culture through through structure, right? And the same goes for for, for a data-driven culture. So how do I as a product leader um, set it up and, and brings the right spirit in, in, into it? And I think um, one one basis of that is to to really uh, 
make sure that you you can state that you don't know you don't have the data uh, of things and and uh, it's it's um, it's clear that uh, that that you can say that you don't know because in this kind of uncertainty you want to create more certainty with um, getting to know know much more and, and lear learn together and devise a different kind of uh, experiments so that's like the first uh, um, first thing that okay be, be aware that you don't know because also if someone comes with you then with an idea uh, seems interesting I don't know if it works how can we find a little bit more if this could be a good idea to do or not and then maybe help that person to devise some kind of experimentation or get a bit more data in order to um, to 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 get it going uh, but then some some practical things uh, we do in our team to to have more of the data-driven uh, culture is First of all, uh, like yeah, we have a product roadmap board, uh, a very simple one since we're a small team, uh, no, nothing Jira or something like that. It's more that we work on one, one item at a time and we do like what we do this sprint, the next sprint, the later sprints, but also added that we have some kind of follow-up. So when we launch something, we have it in the follow-up kind of part of the board. So each time we do the sprint planning or the sprint through the board, it's always there so we can go back and see if it worked or didn't work. So always to kind of thinking the thing that we launched needs to have some kind of impact in the in the product uh, and then be humble when things doesn't work uh, and sometimes your gut feeling works and sometimes it doesn't uh, but then you get the data to um, to do that um, other than that i think also the way of, of launching things and um, uh, and this i think depends a little bit on the kind of business you're in so like if you're in a and a business to business towards medical appliances, I think the confidence level that it would work would be much, much, much higher than, for instance, if you're a consumer app like like ours, where if if things break, it doesn't matter that much. It's just that that person can't access the data in, in different ways. But it means that we can launch 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 much earlier. So when we look at new features, we have talked to customers to understand whether this is something that would fit their pain points. But then we design what we call a 1.0 version. Uh, but we launch a 0 0.5 version, <laughs> so something that's even smaller than the 1.0 version, because then we can find out whether it's it's even the right right things before we're doing it completely the right right way. I mean, it needs to have enough quality to do the job, but we can still launch and get data early on if it actually actually works. And I think with that kind of structure, uh, it's easy for 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 people to start thinking about data because they know okay, we launched a 0 0.5 version. We'll, Get some data on it. We'll iterate it to the 1.0 version and make it uh, make it better. So that kind of we're using the app and 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 the thing as a tool to get data to make better decisions uh, going forward. And then the last thing is like really be an advocate for for user testing. Um, and I mean I'm of course since we're a small team and and I'm part of every every customer interview. Uh, and, and yeah, needs to be there, but uh, also trying to involve other people in it. And then when it comes to testing user flows that we use, we go around in the office, uh, is it in off co-working office, ask other people what they think about the flow and find loopholes. And my wife, I think, is our super tester. Um, and I test uh, new features and flows on her and uh, say, I can cook dinner tonight. I'll take care of the kids. And can you take one hour to test this kind of flow and say, see what you say? Uh, and having that kind of mentality to to really get all the kind of feedback or suggestions and and, and things into the uh, and even though they're like small bits and pieces, like all together we can get a, a fuller fuller puzzle uh, with it is uh, with, with, with 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 doing this kind of small 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 things. Um, so so that's some some ways I try to to instill a data driven culture, and I would be curious to see how. How you want and you Thomas also work on that in your teams to 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 get uh, people into this uh, data-driven culture. Who goes first? Go for it, Anton. I think you're muted, Anton. In, uh, so now, maybe I'm off mute now. Yes, thank you. Great. Um, so I've been working at B2B companies a lot, and I think it's a little bit different uh, in some ways, but. Um, uh, only because, uh, mainly because the portals and things that you in inevitably build have a much smaller subset of humanity using them. They're normally like, you know, quite targeted. It's a telco, telco thing, or it's a, or it's a, only people who care about insurance or something like that. You know, they're in that domain. Um, but but the things that that I've seen used that are quite successful is actually um, remember that everything is data, including before you build a feature. So. 
I think projecting the mock-ups and stuff and getting feedback on those before you even build it, and even uh, testing the premise of what you're building with people, like actual users. Because if you drop somebody into a user journey and you ask them to look at it, and they haven't really thought about how did I even find myself in this place? Why am I even doing this user journey? You know, you need to be asking those questions as well. And so long as you do that, like they'll get the why and make sure that test the why with them and then show them the feature, get the feedback from them before you actually start executing the building the feature. And then, as you mentioned, after you release the feature and also, of course, during the building, you're also testing and showing things to people internally and externally. But at the end, it's quite classic for a lot of companies to fire and forget, right? They'll it doesn't mean that there's no data though. This is actually wrong. Just because you don't have a structure to do it, there is still data coming in. It's just that it's going to come through your customer support desk instead. <laughs> and actually I find this data to be really useful and almost the best negative feedback is very, very valuable. It's almost weighted for me. It's weighted like 100 to 1 to positive feedback. If you just say, yeah, Anton, that's great. I was, yeah. Okay, fine. If you say like, this and this and this was shit. And I'm like, oh, oh, great. Okay, so let's talk more about that. And then you end up having a, a better conversation. So embrace negative uh, negative data, negative feedback after you release the feature. Yeah, that reminds me of something really cool. I worked at a, at a big company and you know, been bashing it a little. But we got a new CEO and he came from Amazon and he, uh, he looked at the, uh, it was a, a streaming service. He looked at the App Store ratings. They were bad. And just like you say, he, he put a lot of value on, on those App Store ratings. Um, so every budget we looked at from then had the App Store rating as um, the first line in the budget and then came all the financials. And I tell you, that was a way to make the, make the company look at the App Store ratings and, and improve them. That's kind of cool. Um, and apart from that, you know, I, I started this podcast off disclaiming that I don't have any answers. I have a lot of questions. So, boys, I would love to hear more about that uh, follow-up you plan into a roadmap. We're doing some of the same and just started doing it. But how does that look? How does a follow-up of a release look for you? Uh, well, first of all, since we do a 0.5 version, we know that we, we will be working on the 1.0 version like immediately after. So that means that we're collecting data from the 0.5 version as we're building the 1.0 version, which means that we can make tweaks. Like it could be that uh, uh, was the wrong kind of build up to the feature or the onboarding that was, was not correct. And I can see because we use tools like Hotjar and these things that you can actually uh, see how people are behaving on, on the website and how they're clicking and things like that. So we get that kind of, uh, it's more like quantitative feedback that we get uh, from there, but it's still um, still um, those we use in order to improve the 1.0 version. So that we that we don't do build something that's perfect and uh, then, then iterate because then we lose time, right? So it's better than to do it in, in like two stages, uh, so to say. Uh, and uh, and of course, sometimes there are features that will take much longer time uh, that we launch and then we, we get back to later. But having that on the board reminds us to actually go back and, okay, how did this feature uh, worked? And and on before we set up some kind of success metrics around, okay, we believe that this feature is, is successful, is this or that have actually uh, been, been performing, should increase the conversion rate. And if it hasn't, uh, a lot then then okay uh, should we keep it or not that's the that's the question or we do it in different ways so that's how we how we work with uh, uh with that on the on the roadmap and again it's a sana board so it's super simple and it's just having that moon that card from next to to follow up but um but uh that's that's the job to to remind ourselves of doing the analysis if it's actually working love, love simplicity um success metrics i have a real hard time making that work in real life maybe it's because we're subscale and don't have enough traffic but often i look at the metrics and i think yeah maybe it worked i don't know no nothing conclusive what do you think you're going to be super successful and have a hockey puck curve right so uh, if you think about logarithmic scales versus, um, you know, linear scaling, uh, in very early days, you can see wild swings, right, in your metrics if you're tracking it over time. So, uh, and 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 yet, when you say would look at it five years down the line, when you have more data, of course, to make it more, you know, average out and be more meaningful in that way, 
you will probably think those swings actually it would it's better it's just like investing in the stock market it's you have to be very careful you don't just like react because the stock drops 20% one day or goes up 20% the next day the the strategy is normally that you just you know if you have high conviction in this stock like apple or something whatever you just keep buying it no matter what's going on with the price so those metrics like you have to be careful especially early days i think that when you have larger user base they're very important and they're very meaningful like if you have a drop of you know conversion rate or something like that on your website or um your your monthly average users is starting to drop and you're talking and you have like uh, five thousand users or 10,000 users, then it's really important. But in the early days, it's like, you just remember where you are on that potential scale. I mean, how how do you know that it's not a temporal thing? How do you know it wasn't just like a, a holiday or something? Or you, know, you just don't want to jump around too much, I think. But I do think that if, I agree, like you, you, uh, you're still basing on some, some assumptions, but um, if you have a little bit more kind of data sources that can suggest it's moving in a certain direction, you'll take action on it. So. Uh, if the quantitative data, even though it's a lower number, suggests that it's a big drop, and you can also see behavior on how they are using it in Hotjar or whatnot, mm. um, then then okay, hmm, here's something we need to to take actions. But I agree, most of the times when you launch something, it's more like, hmm. and once in a while you find this kind of 40% increase uh, uh, that 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 did it. And the issue is when you have a lot of. Hmm, uh, it's not like uh, it's the negative or the positives that that knows that you have done something, something uh, really good. And and I think the the drawback or the challenge is how when it's that mm, do you do you keep it that way or do you iterate on it or what do you do? And I think that that depends on how important you think that that kind of feature is for for the the total success of the of the business in the end, right? Um, and then there are some parts that are. Are, are more hygiene factors and doesn't really matter and some things that are really gonna gonna make make shine and those those you, you iterate more on. There's there's I, I guess I'm I, I'm I'm totally with you. And I think so if you find um, corroboration between different factors, then you can be more confident that this is something that you need to act on. And you know, I think ultimately you have to you still I'm not saying that you shouldn't act quickly when you think that especially as a startup that there's something important that you need to change. Um, but uh, I, I was thinking more about, um, well, I started thinking just now about larger companies as well. Uh, I went through this recently, and th this is actually the whole reason I started <laughs> ranting about data. Um, have you heard of Goodhart's law? No. So it, it states, you can Google him, he's on Wikipedia, he's quite famous. It states that uh, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So this is the cautionary tale around metrics as well, right? It's like, it's good to have metrics and to track them and to trace them. But uh, I think, um, and to take action on them as well is okay. But I think that if you, it's, there's a really strong tendency for them to become targets from somebody eventually you know if you get acquired by a private equity firm or something next thing you know some of your metrics got turned into targets and everything goes downhill from there so yeah i think people should look up goodhart's law it's a goodie fantastic cheers guys really enjoyed that um we'll leave it there this has been the evolution exchange podcast i'd like to take this opportunity to thank anton thomas and tobias for providing their insights into the topic and thanks to everyone for listening if you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at daniel.mychick at evolution-nordics.com and we'll see you next time. Cheers, guys. Thank you.